We are going to be in chapter 25 of Genesis. Let me just remind you, in chapter 24, uh, remember, Abraham and Sarah have the promised child, Isaac. He's 40 years old, but he's not married yet, so he needs a wife. In chapter 24, a couple weeks ago we looked at it, where Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac, and he gets Rebecca, and Isaac marries Rebecca. That's chapter uh, 24. Chapter 25, we're go- I'm going to just summarize the first part of it. It's a lot of background information. Abraham, I uh, remember Sarah has died. Abraham remarries a woman named Keturah, and he fathers six sons. Abraham, way to go, right? He lives to age 175, okay, when he dies, and he leaves a huge inheritance. He gives some gifts to all these other sons, but he leaves a huge inheritance uh, to Isaac because Isaac is the promised child, right? And then there's a little bit about Ishmael, Abraham's first son, and we read about his family tree. But then we get into chapter 25, verse 21, where we read, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. So Esau is a play on words. It sounds like the word red. And then they, the, the country, or the name of the country that he is the father over is Edom. Esau, Edom, red, all is a play on words. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. Get back in here, you know. So his name was called Jacob, which sounds like heel, but it's also the word for deceiver. So little red and little deceiver were born that day, right? Uh, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, okay? So then we start to see the fulfillment of this prophecy as they grow up. In verse 29, it says, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. So Esau, Edom, red, big red, okay. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now, okay. So deceiver says, Ah, he's starving. When people are starving, they'll do anything. So I am going to trick him into selling his birthright. What's his birthright? Um, Well, the older usually inherited twice as much as the other children. So this is my opportunity 
You know, he's a brute beast. He's, he'll do anything for food. I'll, I'll trick him into selling me his birthright. So I'm first. I'm above uh, Esau. Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay? So uh, the, the key verse that I want us to focus on, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And we see this start to be fulfilled right in this chapter. Now, I'm going to summarize another event, um, and it's going to take us into chapter 27. Chapter 26 uh, is, a, is another um, incident in the life of, of uh, Isaac where he is sojourning in the land. There's a famine, and he does the same thing that Abraham, his father, did. He says, my wife, Rebecca, She's really not my wife. She's my sister. He was afraid that, that people would want to kill him because she was so beautiful. Right? And then uh, Abimelech, same guy, says, wait a minute, she's, she's not your, uh, your sister. She's your, your wife. Why did you bring this disgrace upon us? And uh, he ends up being called out for his sin, but then Abimelech blesses him and gives him lots of money and lots of sheep and everything. So that happens in 26. In chapter 27, we see a similar event to the, the cheating of, of uh, Esau out of his birthright. But this is not his birthright that he cheats him out of. It's his blessing. Remember, Abraham was given a blessing by God. He passed it on to Isaac, and now Isaac is going to pass the blessing on, he thinks, to Esau, the oldest. But Jacob steals the blessing. He puts on Esau's clothes so he smells like Esau. And Esau is a big hairy guy. He even took animal fur and put it on his arms and around his neck. And Isaac is blind. And he, he tells Esau, go make me some stew. These guys are into stew, all right? And he goes off to kill an animal, and uh, Jacob makes some goat stew with his mother's help. Rebecca's in on this. And he goes into his father's tent, and he says, hey, Dad, it's, it's Esau, and gives him the stew. And he goes, well, you kind of sound like Jacob. He goes, no, it's me, it's Esau. Give me my blessing. And he says, let me feel you. And he feels the, the fur, and he goes, all right. And he blesses him. Right then he leaves, and Esau comes back, and he says, Dad, I'm here with my stew. Give me the blessing. And he goes, oh, wait a minute. I thought that you were just here. Who was that? It was Jacob, that deceiver. Oh. But the blessing has been passed on. The younger stole the blessing from the older. And uh, Esau wants to kill Jacob. But all that to show that this Prophecy is starting to be fulfilled in the lives of these two uh, twins. Okay? Now, verse 23 is central in the Apostle Paul's uh, treatment of election in Romans chapter 9. Now, I always say if you can get a great commentary on a passage, buy it. 
Well, what's a better commentary on this Old Testament passage than one written by an inspired apostle? So, we're going to uh, jump out of Genesis 25 and see how the Apostle Paul deals with it in Romans chapter 9. Now, let me tell you what I believe the point of Romans 9 is. Okay? Um, Here you go. God is sovereign over nations and individuals, over choices and over salvation itself. Yet, nations and individuals are 100% accountable for those choices. Let me say it again. God is sovereign over nations and individuals, over choices and salvation, yet nations and individuals are 100% accountable for those choices. You say, I don't get how that fits together. Join the rest of us. Okay? But let's not deny what Scripture is teaching because we can't understand it. All right? So let's take a look at Romans 9. Paul begins by saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, that's anathema, and cut off from, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Why is Paul so grieved? Because his kinsmen, Israel, after the flesh, okay, they've rejected Christ. Now, uh, the original apostles were Jewish. The first church started in Jerusalem. Okay, so there's a, a remnant of Jewish people who are believing in Christ. But the majority of them, Paul goes from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, are rejecting Christ. So he is in anguish about the salvation. Okay, the issue in Romans 9 is salvation. He is in anguish over the salvation of the Jews because they are rejecting the Savior Christ. So point point that I want you to see is Salvation is the issue, not just... Some people want to dismiss Romans 9 and say it's not about salvation. It's just about uh, God's sovereignty over nations. No, it's about salvation, okay? So, speaking of the Israelites, he says they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, okay? God chose them out of the nations. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So God has clearly favored Israel. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. You go, where in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God? How about right there? Christ is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Okay, But here's the issue. They seem to have rejected the Messiah. Has the word of God failed? 
Has Israel's rejection of Christ shown that God's promises to Israel have failed? Right? But it's not as though the word of God has failed. His answer is no. God's word has not failed. Now, why is this so important? How, how does this fit into the flow of Romans? Well, Paul has just given incredible blessings. He's pointed out the incredible blessings and promises to we who are in Christ. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who in eternity past chose you will see you through to eternity future. All these promises in Romans 8, how can you really be sure God can keep them if he made promises to Israel and they've failed? So, has, has God's word failed? No, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Well then, how do you fit together this idea that God's word hasn't failed, yet his people have rejected the Messiah and are headed for doom. Here's the answer. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What do you mean? Well, he's going to go on to unpack that. He's going to show you that even in the case of Abraham, there's a clear distinction between his two children, Ishmael and Isaac. One was a child of promise. The other was a child of the flesh. Not all Israel is Israel. In fact, he goes on to say this. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's a quote when when, uh, Abraham says to God, here's Ishmael, here's your promised child that Hagar and I made. Here he is. And God says, no, no, I'm not choosing him. It's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. Okay. Now look at this. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In essence, he's saying not all are children because they're his children. Even though Ishmael is a child of Abraham, he's not a child of Abraham just because he's a child of Abraham. Do you get that? Right? Not all Israel is Israel. There's Israel of the flesh and there's Israel of the spirit. Just because Ishmael is a child of Abraham. He is not a child of Abraham. Not all Israel is Israel. Okay, Verse 8. This means that it's not the children of the flesh. Remember, um, Abraham and, and Hagar got together and they decided in their own power to make a baby. That's a child of the flesh. Okay? This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The flesh, that's, that's Ishmael. But the child of promise is Isaac. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. That's not a child of the flesh. That's a miracle baby. That's not a natural baby. That's a, a supernatural baby. Why? Because Abraham's a 100 and Sarah's 90. 
The only way they're going to have a, a baby is not through the flesh, but through a miracle. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all children of Abraham are true children of Abraham. Okay? So, point number one is this. Amongst the physical children of Abraham, we see a subset of children. Children of God. Okay? So what, what Paul's answer is, is no. God's promise to Israel has not failed because there's external Israel, but within external Israel, there's a remnant who have been chosen, who are the true children of God. Paul's one of them. The other apostles are also a part of that group. But Paul goes on to give an even greater illustration than Isaac. Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. So let's, here's, this will help. This is the flow chart. Here's Abraham, and he has Sarah, his wife, and Hagar. Hagar has Ishmael, and God says, no, he is not. He's the firstborn, but he is not the child of promise. Sarah has Isaac. He is the child of promise. But you know what? You could say, well, that's not a great example. God probably chose Isaac because this was an illegitimate marriage over here. And maybe he was going to give Ishmael the promise, but he watched him. And, you know, even the prophecy when he was born, he was... Uh, supposed to be a wild donkey of a man and he probably showed that in his early years so God rejected him and then he said let's give it another try with with Isaac so different mothers time went by maybe that's not the best illustration so Paul goes on and he says all right let me give you another illustration Isaac marries Rebecca and they have twins only one mother and there's not they're not separated by time Yet, God chooses the younger Jacob over the older Esau. Verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, what's election? Choosing. So, so what's being contrasted? Doing. They had, not, they had not been born and they had not done. Doing is being contrasted with God's choosing. Their doing versus God's choosing. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The other contrast is works versus God's divine calling. It's not by doing. It's not by works. It's by election and calling. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay? Now, you know the debate between Calvinists and Arminians. Calvinists say God chooses. Arminians say God looks into the future to see what we're going to do, and then he backs up, and then he writes his, then he chooses. He, 
He chooses based on foreknowledge. This passage is going out of the way, out of its way, to eliminate God looking into the future to see what they are going to do and what their works are going to be. It is based on God's election, God's choosing, God's calling, not on anything they do. How could Paul be any clearer than to eliminate looking into the future to see what they're going to do? You have to read that into the passage. Okay. Now, the word foreknowledge is used in Romans 8, but that word foreknowledge doesn't just mean looking into the future. It means forechoosing, foreloving. Okay? Now, here's the other tactic people take. They say, well, maybe Paul in Romans 9 is not talking about the individuals, Jacob and Esau, but he's talking about the nations that they represent. Now, I think that's, a, that's a, a, a point that needs to be addressed because in the original context, God does say to Rebekah, there are two nations in your womb, right? And the older will serve the younger. Edom will be under Israel, okay? Um, then in Malachi chapter 1, Jacob and Esau are referred to, and it's referring to nations. Here at Malachi 1, God says, I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Okay, I'm going to tell you how I've loved you, Israel. Is not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Is he talking about the children, or is he talking about nations? I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. He's talking about the destruction of Edom there. So here's what people do. They say, well, Paul's not talking about Jacob and Esau as individuals in Romans 9. He's talking about Israel as a nation being subservient, or or, uh, Edom being subservient to Israel as a nation. Now, Let me give you five responses to that real quick. Number one, while the original quote in Genesis 25 does have reference to nations and its ultimate fulfillment is in the nations of Israel and Edom, there was also an immediate fulfillment in the lives of Jacob and Esau, which we see in the birthright deception, and the blessing deception. So both are options. Are we talking about nations, or are we talking about the babies in the womb? Okay? Now it's true that the quote from Malachi is about nations, but the original context is about individuals. And here... Paul is the one who gets to determine how he's using it. Paul can take the quotes and use them how he wants to use them. So point one is both are an option, nations or individuals. Point two, his previous illustration of 
Ishmael and Isaac is about individuals. Point three, his following illustration about Pharaoh is about an individual. So he gives three illustrations. The two on either side are about individuals. It seems that the one in the middle would be about them as individuals. And remember he just talked about Isaac and Ishmael. He goes on and he says, not only so, but also. So he's, he's clearly tying this illustration to the one he just gave with the words, not only so. Number four. Verse 10 certainly seems to be talking about the babies in the womb. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. She, at verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, though they had not been born. Who's the they referring to? The children. I think Paul is focusing on the children in the womb. Yes, they do eventually represent nations, but here in the context of the flow of Romans 9, I think he's talking about the babies in the womb. Now, here's point five. Even if Paul does switch to talking about nations for this particular illustration, the rest of the chapter is clearly talking about salvation and is dealing with individuals. Okay? So even if you could argue that this, isn't refer- this is only referring to nations, I think the rest of the chapter is talking about the salvation of individuals. So let's go on and look at his third point. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now I'm going to say the only way that question makes sense is if we are interpreting this to mean God is choosing individuals over other individuals. Right? So Paul's anticipating our emotional reaction. Wait a minute, this is outrageous. Is, there, is God being unjust? His answer, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom, singular, on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom, singular, I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, See, here again, it's not on works, not on human will, not on human exertion, but on God who has mercy. So he's going to give the illustration of Pharaoh. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, an individual, for this very purpose I have raised you, singular, up, that I might show my power in you, singular, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever, singular, he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay? Now, this is where some people say, I just can't handle this. 
God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then he punishes him? How is that just? Well, I think we need to ask the question, how does God harden the heart of a sinner? And just so you see, this isn't just Brian Smith talking. Let me quote from the MacArthur Study Bible. It talks about hardening. This does not mean that God actively created unbelief or some other evil in Pharaoh's heart, but rather that he withdrew all the divine influences that ordinarily acted as a restraint to sin and allowed Pharaoh's wicked heart to pursue its sin unabated. In other words, for God to harden the heart of a sinner, he's not injecting new evil into their heart. All he has to do is step back and remove his restraining hand and allow the sinner to do what the sinner wants to do. Who's accountable for that then? The sinner. He's giving the sinner enough rope to hang himself. You know, remember when Abraham first went to Abimelech and said, oh, Sarah's my, my sister. She's not my wife. And Abimelech takes, uh, takes her, Sarah, as his wife. And then God appears to Abimelech and he says, you're a dead man because you told, took another man's wife. And then he says, well, I didn't know. I thought, you know, I thought it was uh, his sister. This is what God says. It was I, Mr. Abimelech, who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. I hemmed you in and protected you from sinning. If he had removed his hand, though, and Abimelech sinned, would that absolve Abimelech from sinning? No. No. All right? So, when it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart or hardens the heart of any sinner, don't think that he's absolving the sinner from his actions of sinning. Now, the next verse says this, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, the fact that Paul raises this or anticipates this as an objection tells us that we're understanding him properly. The only way this would be raised is if we are understanding Paul to say that God is sovereign over human choice. This objection only makes sense if we're assuming that reading of the text. Okay, So he goes on to say, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Now, this is frustrating because Paul doesn't give a philosophical answer. You know, this thing. How how does the sovereignty of God fit with the responsibility of man? 
well, if you study philosophy and you talk about first and second degree causality and uh, different elements of, uh, of causation and coercion and so forth, you'll find that there's a thing called soft compatibilism. Blah, 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 blah. He doesn't do that. Now, there are philosophers and theologians out there who do try to uh, explain how God can be sovereign and we can be responsible. Paul doesn't do that. You know what Paul does? Is he addresses the arrogant attitude of the person who says, well, if God's sovereign, then, then how can he hold me accountable? The snotty attitude toward God. And Paul smacks the face of the, of the snotty person and says, you be careful who you're talking about. You don't get to put God on trial. right? You don't get to use his sovereignty as an excuse for your sin. So be careful about your attitude. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make, his, uh, make known his power, has endured, this is an important word, he's endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Okay, What if, what if he's enduring vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What if God takes from the same lump of clay and makes some vessels for honorable purpose and some meant to be destroyed? So the vessels of honor get to see the full display of God's attributes. That's what he's doing. He's allowing you to see what you deserve while saving you from what you deserve while giving others what they deserve. Now, I think an important question here is this. As God creates these vessels, some for glory, some for destruction... How does he view the clay? Does he view the clay as morally good clay, morally neutral clay, or morally evil clay? All right, now, we've quoted MacArthur, we've quoted uh, uh, Piper. Let's quote uh, Sproul. You can't talk about Roman Zion without quoting Sproul, right? If RCS is R.C. Sproul, okay. If we look closely at the text, we will see that the clay with which the potter works is fallen clay. One batch of clay receives mercy in order to become vessels of honor. That mercy presupposes a clay that is already guilty. You can only give mercy to that which is already guilty. Likewise, God must endure the vessels of wrath that are fit for destruction because they are guilty vessels of wrath. Why is that important? Doesn't God have the right to take from the bunch of clay all of humanity that deserves damnation? Doesn't he have the right to take some and remove his restraining hand and allow it to receive 
the punishment that it deserves? Does he not have the right to take some others and die for it and bring it with him for eternity? That's his argument. Okay? Now, you say, I just don't see how sovereignty and responsibility fit together. So, what are you going to do? You're going to reject one? Which, which one are you going to reject? If you reject the sovereignty of God, then you have an impotent God. You can't pray to him. He can't do anything. I'm trying. I'm trying, but I, I've got 7 billion people on the planet, and I can't do anything against their will. Okay. Or, you're going to deny human responsibility? God is sovereign. We're just robots. We're in the matrix. In fact, ESV study Bible says this, Paul affirms that humans are guilty for their sin. And he offers no philosophical resolution as to how this fits with divine sovereignty. He does insist that God ordains all that happens, Ephesians 1.11, even though God himself does not sin and is not morally responsible for sin. So I'm happy to live in the box. You know, what's the box? Four sides of the box. One, God is sovereign. Bottom of the box. God is not guilty of sin. He is holy, holy, holy. Other side of the box. Man is a sinner, and man is responsible for his sin. Live in that box. You go outside of that box, you've got to deny the sovereignty of God, or the responsibility of man, or the holiness of God, or the sovereignty of God. Okay? You've got to live in that box. Now, if we go back to the Genesis text, we see that there is this this prophecy. God says the older will serve the younger. But then we see deceiver steal the birthright from red. And we see red not give a flip about the birthright. Was this a violation of their wills? No. In fact, okay, we've quoted what? Sproul, MacArthur, ESV Study Bible, Piper. Um, let's quote Salehammer, okay? Salehammer says this, We are left with no doubt that the writer saw in this story of Jacob's trickery a larger lesson that Esau, though he had the right of the firstborn, did not value it over a small bowl of soup. Thus, when in God's plan Esau lost his birthright and consequently his blessing, there was no injustice dealt him. The narrative has shown that he did not want the birthright. He despised it. Did God do this against their wills? No, it was all according to their wills. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Now, you go, wow, this is pretty heavy-duty stuff. I was hoping to get a, sing a few songs, get a blessing, and go to lunch. Right? Um, you go, why does this matter? Okay. Piper's been preaching this stuff long enough. In fact, he wrote his first book on Romans 9. Okay. 
He's been preaching this long enough that he's come up with a list of 10 things of why Romans 9 matters. So let me quickly go through that list, okay? This is all Piper. Romans 9 makes me confident that God's word will not fail and all the promises of Romans 8 will prove true for me even in the worst suffering. You see, the whole point of Romans actually 9, 10, and 11 is to say God's promises to Israel have not failed. And that's good because God's promises can't fail. And that's good because you've got some really good promises in Romans 8 that you don't want to fail. Romans 9 gives you assurance that Romans 8 is going to take place. Right? Number two, Romans 9 makes me stand in awe of God and leads me into the depth of true God-centered worship. Piper tells the story that when he went to seminary, he said, I had a Sunday school view of God. A little God I put in my pocket, took him out when I needed him. And then he was confronted with the sovereignty of God. And he said he spent a year weeping. He said at one point he, he threw his Bible across his room weeping, trying to figure out who this God was. Right? Now, uh, on the one hand, I would say, if you say, absolutely not, I don't buy any of this, I would say, be careful that you don't commit idolatry and say, I'm only going to worship God if he's according to my brain size. Okay? On the other hand, I would say, if there's no struggle at all going on in your brain or your heart right now, you're probably asleep or dead. How can, you, how can your world not be rocked by this? But in the end, what it should produce in us is an awe of God, a bowing of the knee and a bowing of the heart to a sovereign God, not a Sunday school God. Number three, Romans 9 helps protect me from trifling with divine things. You know, Piper always chides the American church for being chipper. You have the chipper service and you have the chipper, chipper, chipper. He goes, our, our chipperness doesn't do the holiness of God justice. Let's not trifle with the holiness of God. Right. Number four, Romans 9 helps to keep me amazed at my own salvation. Why? Because you could be Ishmael, Esau, or Pharaoh instead of Isaac, Jacob, or Moses. Right. Number five, Romans 9 makes me groan over the indescribable disease of our secular, God-belittling culture. You know, it's one thing to be disrespectful to the pocket-sized God. It's another thing for our culture and world to disrespect the sovereign God of the Bible. It should grieve us even more. 
Number six, Romans 9 makes me confident that the work which God planned and began, he will finish both globally and personally. I can claim, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. And I can be confident that in spite of the craziness of the world, there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation standing before the throne worshiping Christ. And that every nation will hear the gospel before Jesus returns. Okay? How can that be certain if God's not sovereign? Number seven, Romans 9 makes me see that see everything in the light of God's sovereign purposes that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. In other words, when you see that God is sovereign, everything is worship. Not just Sunday morning, but you can, you can see God working things together and you can worship him in every situation. Okay. Number eight, Romans 8 makes me hopeful that God has the will, the right, and the power to answer prayer that people be changed. So, when people say, if God is sovereign, why pray? My response is, if God isn't sovereign, why pray? What's he going to do? If God is sovereign, why evangelize? If God isn't sovereign, why evangelize? Which is similar to number nine. Romans 9 reminds me that evangelism is absolutely essential for people to come to Christ and be saved and that there is great hope for success in leading people to faith. But that conversion is not finally dependent on me or limited by the hardness of the unbeliever. In other words, God has chosen us to be the vehicles to share the gospel, and he saves people through us sharing the gospel. But it's guaranteed that they will come. And he allows us to get in on the glory. So we get to be in the locker room after the game with our bruises and our black eyes in our insults, in our beheadings, and we get to go, yeah, that was a great game, wasn't it? It was awesome how you shared the gospel and led that person to the Lord. Praise God that he chose him. It's great, though, that he used us. Okay. Finally, Romans 9 makes me sure that God will triumph in the end. How else can you be sure that all the promises will, will be true? God is sovereign. Let's pray. Lord, we have plumbed the depths, and I don't imagine, um, I, 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 I can't imagine that we are not struggling. But Lord, I pray that you would produce in us a submission to your word, a wrestling with your word, so we Say, I will worship God how he has revealed himself, not how I want him to be. And then, Lord, I pray that as we embrace your glory, your sovereignty, that we would love it 
It would give us confidence, and, and your sovereignty would be the rock upon which we stand in troubled times like we live in. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here who don't understand the gospel that you died and paid the full price for all who believe that your sovereignty, that you sovereignly would draw them to yourself. And if that is you, rest in Christ, for he paid the full price for all who trust in him. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.